welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 88. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's Q&A episode, we just want to remind you that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them. Take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. You can always feel free to leave us a review on iTunes as well, if that's where you listen. And if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, which you can also find in the show notes below or any of our Instagram bios. Just a reminder that we don't just coach comp prep competitors. We coach anyone with health and fitness related goals. Now, without further ado, let's get cracking into episode 88. Jack, what's the first question for today? So the first question is, are multivitamins necessary? And I'll let you kick this one off, Tiara. Are they necessary? Man, I can't believe it's taken us almost 100 episodes to actually talk in depth about multivitamins. But I just want to ask you, like, do you think that they're necessary? No, I, I think micronutrients are necessary, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessary to supplement with multivitamins that's for sure damn what a dietitian (laughs) but i think when it comes to multivitamins i fully understand why people take them right i've taken multivitamins in the past have you ever taken a multivitamin before many times yeah Yeah, it just you know because people you know they'll sell you this idea of it's just an insurance policy right like just in case you aren't getting those nutrients from your food cover your bases, it's an insurance policy, pop this pill just to top up your intake, right? I get it from that standpoint, but I'm always going to take a food first approach. Like I would say, Jack, neither you or I are food only. We definitely understand that there is a time and a place for supplements. So it's not food only, but it's definitely food first. Yeah. And a lot of the foods we eat are fortified with micronutrients anyway. Exactly. That's the thing. So First, I would definitely consider what is the quality of your diet, right? So I would always take that food first approach before you go pop in any pills. But uh, the thing is with multivitamins, okay, is that generally they are actually pretty underdosed with nutrients. So if you actually look on the back of a multivitamin pill, they're actually going to have, it's predominantly just going to be a lot of B vitamins. It's going to be a little bit of vitamin C. It might have like maybe a little bit of vitamin E, a little bit of vitamin D. Um, It might have a bit of calcium, iron, zinc, magnesium, things like this. But there's just a few issues with that. One, they are heavily underdosed because we have to think that a multivitamin, it's quite small. I've never actually weighed a multivitamin out, but I'd imagine it would only weigh about a gram right? So it'd probably be close to like one gram would be 1000 milligrams in total. So you have to think you can only fit so much into this one pill. And uh, also there's a few issues with actually putting all of your nutrients into one pill. So for example, if you have a multivitamin and you're combining things like zinc, magnesium, iron, and calcium all in this one pill, we know that all of those micronutrients, they end in a two plus, which like in chemistry for their number of electrons. But the thing about these four micronutrients in particular is that they'll actually compete for absorption in the small intestine. So if you're actually consuming all of these at once, right, it's awesome that you're technically getting them into your digestive system, but are you actually able to absorb them and will they actually be 
bioavailable in your body? Will they actually be able to be absorbed into your bloodstream and, you know, carry out their purposes as a micronutrient? So that's one issue, right? Taking all these things at once, you're going to have a bit of a nutrient interference with absorption. The other thing is these things are heavily underdosed, right? If you were just to eat a decent amount of meat and a decent amount of whole grains per day, you're probably going to get even more vitamin Bs. So the B complex vitamins. So think of things like vitamin B12, um, you know, yeah, all of those B vitamins, you're going to get that from your whole grains and your meat anyway. So it's not necessary to actually be supplementing with one of these pills. Yeah. All your good foods, literally your foods, guys. So I'd always say food first before pills. Yeah, Tierra Tierra and I were looking at some vitamin gummies before this. And (laughs) we, because calcium, the recommendation for that is about a thousand milligrams, which is one gram. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine if a gummy bear weighs one gram, like already like that's as much as calcium you required per day, not to mention all the other nutrients. But Mm -hmm. that aside as well. We checked the calcium and it was five milligrams and you need a thousand per day. So that's just how underdosed they are. Oh gosh. And just to think about that, like your average cup of milk is going to give you around 300 milligrams, right? So that's one sixtieth of a dose that you would get from the calcium in just one glass of milk. So, Mm. and the other factor as well is that longitudinal studies haven't actually found a relationship between supplementing with multivitamins and a decrease in chronic diseases such as cancer, cognitive decline, and those sorts of things as well. Mm-hmm. And that's so interesting, isn't it? And I've actually read some literature and I was even taught, I remember this was like back in 2017 when we were doing advanced exercise physiology, they actually presented us with some data showing that multivitamin consumption is actually correlated with an increase in mortality. Now, remember guys, correlation does not equal causation. So that data is certainly not suggesting that if you supplement with a multivitamin, you are more likely to die. It's just saying that there's an interesting correlation there. And I did find that actually very interesting. And what my prediction is, is that someone who actually supplements with a multivitamin perhaps is actually more likely to place a higher emphasis on supplementation rather than their Mm. diet and their lifestyle, right? Yeah. I would say the caveat with that is our, in terms of our audience, like Mm -hmm. everyone listening is, I think there's a difference between people who supplement with them in the fitness community who Mm -hmm. likely have good diets versus people who supplement with them outside the health and fitness community who have poor diets and they try and make up for it. Yeah. I think there's two different things there. Yeah. Um, just being wary of our listeners. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But we have to remember, guys, that sometimes we do, we have to remind ourselves that we do kind of live in this bubble, right? Like we surround ourselves with people who are generally healthy, fit, active, very happy, right? So depending on who you follow on social media, who you interact with at the gym or outside in general life. So if, if you live this sort of lifestyle, you're likely to surround yourself with other people who live your same lifestyle and, you know, share your same passions and beliefs when it comes to health and nutrition and fitness so sometimes it's almost like man everyone must be healthy and fit and happy right but we have to remember that that's generally not the case for the wider population like worldwide right there's there's an obesity epidemic that like millions of people are dying from chronic disease every single year so it's uh it's pretty crazy right Mm. so yeah we, we always have to remember that 
two thirds or maybe even more now of Australians are overweight or obese. So Mm -hmm. I think a good point to finish on is basically when, in what circumstances would Tierra and I recommend using supplementation of Mm -hmm. micronutrients? And I don't think I've ever prescribed a multivitamin because I think it's just way too broad. You're paying money for getting very, very, very little nutritional value, as we said in the Mm -hmm. instance of calcium. So what we do is we prescribe it based on what people, what we think people need based on their lifestyle. And we don't prescribe broad spectrum things like the multivitamins. And it's not even prescription, it's just recommendations. But say if someone works night shift, they don't get any sun exposure during the day, then we would recommend a vitamin D supplement. Mm-hmm. And or if someone is intolerant to dairy, they don't eat much dairy, um, or another instance, they maybe just really don't like it, they don't eat it, then it might be a good idea to supplement calcium if they don't get it through fortified milks and stuff like that. Yeah, that is such a good point to make. So yeah, I'd say, yeah, definitely the top two before you go, you know, popping any pills kind of thing. I would actually recommend investing in having a consultation with a dietitian so that you can do a detailed dietary recall and hopefully they can identify, you know, through your average daily diet. Okay, cool. You know, how can we strategically manipulate a few things so that you can add in more calcium to your diet through food? So you can add in some more iron into your diet through food, omega-3 fatty acids, all of these different things, right? So I would definitely invest in doing a dietary recall with a dietitian so you can pinpoint those things. The second one, which like would definitely recommend to basically everyone at least once or twice a year is probably doing some blood work, you know? So actually having some blood tests done so that you can identify if you are deficient in any sort of nutrients through your blood, you know? Blood tests are definitely gonna pick up those big ones like iron and vitamin D as well. So those are just a few things to consider, but I guess the last thing I want to touch on is that, you know, I I hope this isn't going to be taken as like shots fired, you know, because I do hear very often in the health and fitness industry prescribed by coaches, you know, like just take a multivitamin just in case, just as an insurance policy, right? I think that if, and especially if a coach is like providing you with a meal plan, right? Or they're giving you dietary advice, but they're also saying, just take this pill just in case, just to cover your bases, right? That kind of demonstrates to me that the coach doesn't actually understand nutrition on a very detailed level. They don't actually understand the nutrients that are in the foods that they are recommending to you. And kind of think of it in this way as an analogy, right? Imagine that a coach gives you a training program and then they say to you, oh, I want you to just go do a full body Les Mills fitness class, right? Just to ensure that you're hitting every single muscle group, hitting every body part, just to cover your bases, right? That like that demonstrates to me that, whoa, you don't even know like what exercises you're prescribing me and what muscles they're actually actually I've got targeting. Analogy here. <laughs> I wanna hear it. <laughs> so it's like a doc you having maybe like a, a stomach bug and then the doctor gives you six types of antibiotics to say, Oh, just in case, take these other six <laughs> six pills just to just to wipe everything out. Um, you'll be left with no gut flora after that. So. Oh gosh, man. Just just to just to cover your bases, right? Just to make sure we hit we hit the spot. But 
yeah, guys, just take that into consideration. You know, if you are working with someone, if you're investing your money into a coach, like just make sure that they understand what's going on, both from a nutritional aspect and a training aspect. And they understand how whatever they're prescribing you with, how is it actually influencing your body, right? So. Yeah, well, I guess to play good cop, bad cop, like I... I agree with Tierra, but like, I think it's just a part of culture to do that mm. now. Yeah. That's why I want to say no shots fired. You know, I'm mm. not trying to take a jab at anyone. I'm just trying to raise some awareness. Yeah. And I don't think people do it out of that reason of insecurity mm. either that they're, they don't feel like they're providing a good enough plan. I think it's just something that goes hand in hand with a nutrition plan these days is that people say supplement with this as well it can't do any harm so yeah exactly yeah. and it's again it's not likely to cause harm where again where it's we're not saying that multivitamins are the causation of potentially having a higher mortality risk or anything like that but uh yeah just um just take that into consideration and if you are you know concerned that you potentially could be deficient in something or you're just not feeling your absolute best in terms of your health consider reaching out to a dietitian, you know, and doing a detailed dietary recall and really getting a second opinion on what you're putting into your body through food and if supplementation is necessary and back that up with some blood work as well. So yeah, there we go. All right. It's a sneaky plug. A sneaky little plug for us dietitians. Hey, we need it sometimes. We care about you guys. Anyway, next question. What is it, Jack? So this one says, is it possible to be in a calorie deficit slash lose fat without feeling exhausted all the time. Oh boy, is it possible? <laughs> yes, <laughs> but yeah, this is a very good question and it's very multifaceted as well. So mm -hmm. we'll, kind of, we'll try and break it down a bit. So there are just so many factors that can contribute to having a poor dieting experience. And I guess to be, to be honest straight up, like your body doesn't always, it's going against homeostasis at times to mm -hmm. lose body fat. So, so for some people, it can just be a not the best experience. But in saying that, there are definitely ways that it can be made better from mm -hmm. even your mental outlook. So not going into it thinking it's going to be difficult or your energy availability and the amount of time you spend outside of a deficit as well. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are just lots of different factors that we can think of. So we'll get stuck into a few of them. Yeah, so I definitely think the first one to acknowledge, like you said, is that right? Dieting is tough, you know, and depending on the severity of the diet, like you are putting your body into an uncomfortable position. So it is going to fight back a little bit. You know, you will experience a little bit of metabolic adaptation. It will try to conserve its energy. It will try to become a little bit more efficient. You will feel a little bit more tired because your body doesn't want, you know, just you just burning up like a furnace. It's, it's not in the body's best interests unless you are overweight and it's actually quite healthy for you to lose a little bit of weight in order to get into a healthy weight range then the body's more likely to uh, fight you back. So just acknowledge firsthand that it is likely to feel a little bit uncomfortable and it's likely to feel a little bit tough, but there certainly are ways that you can mitigate that so it's not as unpleasant as a process. Yeah, for, for certain. And let's sort of address, I think energy availability and the amount of time you spend outside of a deficit kind of go hand in hand. So. When we talk about energy availability, it's basically the amount of energy you consume daily in proportion to your body weight and how much activity you also do. So mm -hmm. typically people with lower energy availability, they'll have 
yeah, they'll basically be exhausted. They'll have like signs of hormone deficiencies, like mm-hmm. maybe lower testosterone in guys, poor sleep, like the beginning of the red syndrome, stuff like that. Reds is relative energy deficiency in sports, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be just in sports, I guess. Yeah. And so how can we kind of make that better? So the more time you spend outside of a deficit without constantly yo-yo dieting, so without going up and down in body weight and actually sticking to a plan. And again, not everyone, we have to be careful when we say this because not everyone is, the intention is to just keep gaining weight like mm-hmm. like bodybuilders. Some people just want to stay the same weight, which is completely normal as well. But we just want to avoid those periods of drastic weight changes and then coming back up because that's when your metabolism kind of does funky things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't doesn't really have a chance to adapt to a greater amount of energy. Yeah, and I guess a good rule of thumb would be, you know, in the in the bodybuilding world, they use like gaining to cutting ratios of four to one. And what that might look like is, so for four months of gaining, you might only have one month of dieting. For eight months of gaining, you would have two months of dieting. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, obviously that's not like a peer-reviewed guideline or something like that, but that's generally a good rule of thumb that we generally go off. But it doesn't necessarily have to be even gaining to uh, cutting, per se. Perhaps it could be gaining to maintenance for some people, or, you know, just maintenance to gaining even so um it, it obviously it's going to be very individualistic hmm. what you decide to do with your body how you decide to manipulate it yeah i guess the what we can also look at is like how you have conducted the dieting process like have you just cut out and this is speaking generally not to, to the question asker of course but like have you cut out all of your carbs straight away or mm-hmm. have you done like as a as a male or female like have you done 1000 calorie drop or 500 calorie drop mm. like in proportion to your total energy intake so yeah, have you like, implemented high days mm. so yeah that's definitely how aggressive have you been right out of the gates right and is it necessary to be that aggressive like do you actually have a set uh goal in date like you actually have to be a certain body composition or you want to be a certain body composition by this date because it's your wedding or because you have a photo shoot or because you have a bodybuilding show or whatever it may be. And definitely the most uh, responsible thing to do, I would say, is plan well ahead. Don't get like four or eight weeks out from that date and be like, oh God, I got to drop like five or 10 kilograms or something, then try to do it. Be super aggressive. And of course, you're going to end up feeling really exhausted. There's so much merit to planning ahead because if you give yourself more time, you can implement more things like diet breaks. You can implement more things like high carbohydrate days where you are at maintenance for a few days of the week. So you're only actually in a deficit for a few days of the week just to make it more manageable and to just help with your energy levels long term, make it more sustainable and overall make it a more enjoyable process. So there's just so much merit to just planning ahead and just giving yourself a little bit more time. Yeah, undoubtedly. And I think as you get more experience with dieting, like as you do it more often, then you'll get better at doing it. Mm-hmm. And it goes the same way with coaching as well. Like the more experience you have with that, the more signs and markers you can see in terms of, okay, how much do we have to push harder? Are we pushing too hard? All those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And setting the person up for a good diet as well. Like I'm... Like I'm hesitant to, if someone's food hasn't really changed or it hasn't increased that much, I'm kind of hesitant to do a diet because mm-hmm. I don't think that it would be a good experience. Yeah. Like where do you go from there? Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. And I guess the other thing, kind of touching back onto the multivitamins is really looking at the quality of someone's diet, right? Like what foods are you actually consuming? Because energy intake aside, we have to think about, you know, the quality and the micronutrients within a diet as well. If you are one doing a very aggressive diet and also potentially have been a little bit misinformed, perhaps you've cut out whole food groups, right? You could potentially be nutrient devoid. You might even be deficient in something. If you've cut out food groups that have potentially excluded a bunch of iron from your diet, if you have excluded a bunch of B vitamins from your diet, then potentially you could be low in iron. You could be low in certain B vitamins. And we know how these influence our overall energy levels and our health as well. So I think anyone who has been anemic in their life can definitely say like, man, I just feel really tired and exhausted. My performance just isn't there. And B vitamins play a huge role in energy metabolism too. So if you have cut out all of your grains or if you have cut out all of your meats or something like this, despite how many, how much protein, carbs, and fats you're consuming, I, I would argue you're not going to feel the same as compared to if you are consuming a well-balanced, nutrient-rich diet. Mm. Yeah, without a doubt. That's, yeah, kind of goes without saying mm -hmm. that you would hope that diet quality would be on point. Yeah. And just, I guess, other things as well, you know, like what's your training structure like? And also what's your uh, energy output like through things like steps, through things like cardio? What is your like quality of sleep like? Like so many people, unfortunately, they just don't have the best sleep hygiene. They aren't getting the best quality night's sleep. Or even if they're in bed technically for seven hours, what they're doing straight before bed and straight after bed isn't exactly the best, right? I, I'm a huge advocate for getting off my phone like at least an hour to an hour and a half before I actually fall asleep. I just like a break away from my phone and just a break away from that blue light like right in, right in my face. Uh, because I definitely, I personally went through years of where I would um, be on my phone right before I fell asleep. I'd fall asleep with it next to me. First thing when I'd wake up to my alarm, I'd look on my phone and I'd just lay on my phone for 15 minutes in bed. Like now, you and I, our phone's not even in the bedroom. It's in another room. So if we wake up to an alarm or if we wake up, we're not waking up right with our phone. It's not the mm. first thing we do in the morning. And personally, I'm just a big advocate of that. I think it's really healthy and it's... I can definitely speak anecdotally. That's played a huge difference to my sleep. <laughs> yeah. The hardest part with that is just doing it because mm -hmm. once you start doing it, there's, it's, it's something that's very easy to do. Just, I plug my phone in the room next door. So it still wakes me up, mm -hmm. um, by the alarm, Yeah, it, but I don't roll over and get the phone. And then what's what even worse is if you get the phone scroll and then fall back asleep and then yeah. you've canceled your alarm and then. <laughs> You're up at two hours later. So. Yeah, and then you got angry uh, text messages from your boss or something like that. So yeah, quality of sleep is huge as well. But I think probably one of the last points I want to touch on is that like there needs to be other aspects in your life that you love more than food. Like food can be a highlight of your life, but it doesn't need to be the highlight of your life. It can't be the only thing that you look forward to during the day. So like obviously enjoy your meals, eat very mindfully, eat food that you enjoy, but like between meals, make sure that you love what you're doing, you know, make sure that you love your job, make sure that you love your partner make sure you love seeing your friends or going out for, you know, a walk with a dog or that you love your training, doing things between meals that you really love 
that are even more of a highlight than food, right? I think that can just play such a huge role in just long-term sustainability to sticking to a diet um, and really enjoying the process as well. And I think it helps with that distraction point as well, not being so food focused, getting your mind off food and focusing on other wonderful aspects of your life too. Mm -hmm. Undoubtedly. (laughs) Yeah, like it would be, I can see why sometimes the dieting process would overwhelm everything, especially Mm -hmm. maybe in a comp prep and that's when people get tunnel vision which, yeah, is a bit, I would say, is a bit different from normal dieting, but you definitely don't want it to encompass everything, especially when you have a partner or kids, mm-hmm. a work, uh, a job, sorry, not a work, <laughs> a job that isn't fitness related as well. Uh, so, yeah, those are all things to consider. But before we discuss this for another 20 minutes, we'll move on to the next question. <laughs> so, this one says, How do you guys use RPE slash RIR in your training? Yeah, so this has definitely been something that it's a skill, right? Actually being able to know how many reps in reserve you truly have, you're not going to actually understand that the very first time you step into the gym, right? It's Mm. a skill that you will actually develop over years. That's something I want to make clear that don't beat yourself up because, you know, you've been in the gym for a week and you're like, man, I still don't really know how many reps in reserve I would have on a shoulder press kind of thing. It takes time. (laughs) Yeah, so just to clarify, RPE is rate of perceived exertion, RIR is reps and reserves. So they're both a measure of uh, how hard you're training. So for example, if you have less reps and reserves, so one rep and reserve, you're training harder than if you have five reps and reserve. Mm -hmm. So I find that like some people make a good point that the the more you train to, like sometimes it's good to train to failure because then you actually know how, what it feels like when you have zero or no reps in reserve. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess zero is no reps in reserve. So you hit zero reps in reserve, then you hit failure after that. So, and I, I completely agree with that. And over time, even compared to last year, I've gotten better at, uh, to be honest, I avoid failure in mm-hmm. my compound lifts, like bench press, squats, RDLs. But uh, I can, I hit failure in isolation stuff like chest flies, arm exercises, yeah. lateral raises. And... I've noticed a big difference in the quality of my training by and the rate of progression by avoiding failure in those bigger exercises because for me, it decreases the injury risk by a lot and not just the injury risk of in that one rep of going to failure, but also the fatigue it accumulates by mm-hmm. going to failure and also my progression. Like, Because when I would hit failure, in a, it would be mainly bench press, but I would like hit it a few weeks in a row and I, then I just wouldn't improve because my rate of strength gain wouldn't be good enough to mm. to improve so I wouldn't hit failure. And it was so hard to program. I remember yeah. that, right? Like you're like, man, I, like, I don't even know what I should actually program next week because I didn't even achieve it this week. Like it was actually hard to predict. Mm. Yeah, and now I've just made this, it's a very slight change. It just requires like keeping your ego in check, but I'll finish a block at let's say 105 kilos for bench press. Instead of trying to start on 105 for the next block for the same sets and reps, I'll I'll maybe decrease to 102.5 for three sets of six instead of doing 105 for three sets of eight. Mm-hmm. So it might take three weeks in my new block to get back up there, but by that point I'll have more reps in reserve and then I can progress past that point. Yeah, And that's what I do for pretty much all my clients as well. And the the lower training age you have the the less important that is like because you'll be able to improve at a faster rate so would you be more of an advocate for like a beginner trainee or maybe even a 
an intermediate or a novice or something like that actually going closer to take to failure rather than a advanced lifter yeah probably but it depends on the person like, yeah i would say mechanical failure is important so as soon mm-hmm. as your form starts to break down which i think is important for a beginner that's when they should stop yes and but i think that is yeah it's potentially worthwhile because not again not for everything but because they can progress at such a rapid pace mm-hmm. and the amount of volume they need to do is so much lower than an mm-hmm. advanced lifter they'll probably get a lot out of that and but the, i guess i guess the thing with that is you rarely have a beginner who can just go to a failure unless yeah. they're a pre-existing athlete, like let's say a track runner who yeah. who knows how to train really hard. Like yeah. not many people can just step in the gym and start going to failure because it's not just the mindset, it's also the, the technical proficiency mm-hmm. of doing something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. I think that actually training to failure, it's a skill. If you are actually able to physically and mentally push yourself there and you actually train hard, like we have to remember guys that I don't, again, don't want this to be shots fired, but some people just don't train that hard. You know, they, they really don't. So I think sometimes actually learning what does failure actually feel like, I think that can actually be more like an invaluable lesson and invaluable skill, something to actually know. So I think that it can, uh, yeah, there's a huge education component there. Learn mm. things about yourself. Like how far can I really push myself on this leg press or like, do I actually have an extra rep on this shoulder press or does it just feel tough? So I'm just cutting myself short. So yeah, I think first off experiencing failure and understanding that it's a skill to be able to push yourself there. And there's even literature to support this as well. I remember Jeff Nippard like did this video on this classic bench press study, right? Where they asked people, they're like, you know, what's your 10 RM for a bench press? Um, and people, you know, said whatever their number was. Then they got them into a lab and they got them to lift that exact same weight for their bench press. People were lifting up to like 20 reps with what they would have classified as their 10 rep max. So yeah. just goes to show that some people, right, they're just going through the motions. And again, it's exercise and moving your body is a wonderful thing. But if you have performance related goals, like you have to be realistic with yourself and you have to sometimes push yourself beyond that point of, ouch, like mm. this is kind of getting uncomfortable. My heart rate is really high. This isn't that pleasant, but I know I could probably still pump out another three reps, but yeah. how bad do I really want it? Yeah, that's such a good segue into the post we made today on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Are you training or exercising? Go check that one out. <laughs> yeah, we no, but seriously, like this actually relates quite a lot to that. And yeah, we posted, it's just called training and ex- training. Are you training or exercising? So have a read of that, but yeah, basically, Tierra made a good point that it kind of stops becoming exercising and it starts becoming training. Mm-hmm. And you really just have to change your mindset in terms of, okay, I'm going to go to the gym and have a fun workout. I'm going to get a good pump, but I'm not going to exercise to the point where it hurts. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's one of the key differences between training versus exercising is yeah. that it's more structured you're aiming for a specific goal and in order to get that goal you might have to do things that are uncomfortable mm-hmm. and for certain people who enjoy pushing themselves like that that still might be classified as exercise for them mm-hmm. but for a lot of people it will start becoming training but yeah. that's just our kind of take on what those two words mean like it's not supported yeah. by literature or anything yeah like that. absolutely but yeah there definitely is a difference there and obviously exercise is a component of training right moving your body in any way is obviously wonderful for your mental and your physical health 
But uh, depending on, you know, what sort of, what do you want to get out of this? You know, what are your main goals? What sort of results are you trying to strive for? Then it becomes into the point where, okay, maybe I need to be a little bit more strategic with what I'm doing and, you know, get a little bit uncomfortable kind of thing. So yeah, uh, hopefully, I think, would you think that answered the question well? We do, yeah. I guess, yes, we do use RIR and RPE. They're mm. almost, what I find is sometimes they're actually almost interchangeable, but which is interesting. Like, you know, if someone says that they had an RPE of nine, that means that they might have had an RIR of one. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, I, I won't go, th- go throughout my block saying, okay, I have to start at RIR five for mm-hmm. week, one, week one and then end on RIR zero. Like, um, Steve Hall from Revive Stronger is very much like that. Mm-hmm. But for me, like, it's just, if I had to do that, I definitely would. But fortunately, I don't have to. Mm-hmm. As long as I say like roughly probably one to three RIR depending on the movement for the week one and then just naturally I'll end up going very close to or basically two zero but for especially for things like squats and RDLs I just don't like going to failure dude on you would never never fail on a squat please I'm not just <laughs> saying you just anyone out there please like never actually hit muscular failure on a squat like just it would be absolutely awful mm. so especially i i don't squat in a at macrovat they don't have safety bars where i squat so yeah. i have to drop it on the concrete floor yeah which wouldn't be good just dangerous man yeah <laughs> but uh that's the thing you know guys that's the skill of actually knowing how close you are to failure yeah. like if you were going for 10 reps but you just squeezed out that nine and you know you're like i'm not gonna get back up if i try to attempt this 10 mm. Just don't attempt the 10, man. Just don't break your back. Like, don't get 10 people running up to you in the gym. Just, like, the thing stay is, I safe. Know, <laughs> I know there's going to be people listening to that who are like, dude, just do the last rep. <laughs> like, don't be a pussy. And But everyone just has the, has the like, if you want to do that, then fine. But try and get someone to support you. So Yeah. Um, but what I, the last thing I wanted to say, just which was interesting on my own experience is, like now, during this diet that I've been doing, um, I've really had to probably increase the intensity much closer to failure than I have been doing previously. Mm-hmm. And like I've, I've realized that I can take maybe 10 seconds within a set to pause at the top of a squat <laughs> and I can get out one or two more reps. And it's just interesting to see when it becomes like a rest pause set because... Yeah. Like I could do five in a row and then fail on the six or I could do five in a row rest for five mm-hmm. seconds and then do one or two more. Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting to think about it like that as well. I'm, I'm a huge fan of myo reps. I, and I think that's the general term. Yeah. Rest, pause, myo reps. I don't actually know what myo stands for. Maybe it's a person or something who invented no. that. I don't know. I'm not sure. But yeah, myo reps are essentially just like what Jack said. You know, like you do five reps at a good pace. Then you take, you know, 10 seconds rest or something. Then you pump out another one. Then you pump out another one. People probably almost uh, do this without even thinking on something like a leg extension or a hip abduction machine or a bicep curl or something, right? Like you do a few reps. Then you're like, okay, I know I have a few more ref left in the tank, but just give me a second. And then mm. take a few breaths, do a few more. I'm a huge fan of that. I do that in my training all the time, especially for isolation movements like leg extension, because you would be amazed by just taking a few more seconds rest within the set. You can pump out plenty more reps, man. You just need a, you just need a little bit of a break, but just accumulating that overall volume can uh, 
most certainly contribute to a greater training volume and more hypertrophy in the long term. So, yep. yeah, <laughs> don't cool. be scared to uh, take a breather. <laughs> cool. Do you think this is a good spot to wrap things up? I think so. I think so. We're almost up to 40 minutes. But Jack, last question of the day. One thing that you learned this week. So what do you learn this week? So I learned when you take your dog to the vet, make sure you ask everything about what's going on or make sure to get every bit of information from the vet because yeah our dog she got neutered and then she had a setback from the cone that she was wearing unfortunately Mm -hmm. and like it i think it was just annoying because i don't think it was anything to do with us it was just lack of information from the vet Mm -hmm. i don't want to blame the vet either but yeah she got an infection from the cone um which was meant to protect her and yeah she's had a setback because of that but yeah she's doing okay but yeah definitely learn from that experience yeah and if something seems off then it probably is off so take them to the vet right away because dogs can't animals can't communicate like us so it's a lot more difficult yeah and animals are very resilient you know Mm, like like an animal can have a cut or something or a hurt paw and it might not really show as much um as pain as if a human stubbed their toe and they can't shut up about it for an hour or something right yeah, it's really sad. So yeah, definitely guys, if you have if you have a dog who has a cone, what actually happened was she was itching at the cone. And Jack and I were like, oh, that's probably quite normal, right? Like, of course her neck would be itchy because she's itching at the cone. But we think that perhaps she itched so much that she actually maybe cut herself with her claw and then the cone rubbing against that, that got infected. So yeah, if your dog is in a cone, just... Yeah, just take it. Just seriously, pay extra extra attention because um you don't want to lose your dog, you know. Yeah. Yeah, not that we really got close to losing Sam. No, Sam's a tough little cookie. She's asleep on the floor right now. <laughs> but what did you learn this week? What I actually learned this week is that hemp seeds are freaking awesome. So generally in the past whenever I've made oatmeal to actually thicken up the oatmeal I've been a big fan of adding like a teaspoon of chia seeds or a teaspoon of flaxseed or or like a teaspoon of flax meal right because it helps to thicken it up so you can even you know like especially when you're dieting you could add more water it's more voluminous but and extra a little bit nutrition and extra amount of plant omega-3s but hemp seeds whoa man those things are awesome i because i was doing a dietetic consult with someone and they actually mentioned it they're like yeah i actually add hemp seeds to my oats and i'm like Oh, that's so cool. And they're like, yeah, it makes it super thick. And I'm like, I've got to try these. Weren't hemp seeds banned until recently? Yeah. So hemp seeds, they're part of the marijuana plant. And they, you know, they're, yeah, they're part of the marijuana. Are they growing on the same plant? Yeah. Or are they growing? Yeah, they're part, they're part of the same plant, but they're a different component of the plant. So they don't actually contain that. So they wouldn't be sourced from Australia then, would they? Uh, They might be sourced from Australia. I'm not entirely sure, but they just don't have that THC. That would be interesting. They don't have that THC component. So they don't have that like hallucinogenic you know there you're not gonna get high from your hemp seeds sorry guys so <laughs> it's drug-free oatmeal over here the main can't thing is seed brownies <laughs> no you can't <laughs> well you could but it just wouldn't do yeah. much add them you know you'll get some extra omega-3s and add some other stuff if you know you're into that anyway add some hemp seeds to your oatmeal because it makes them super duper thick and very nutritious and hemp seeds are an awesome source of plant omega-3s so yeah, get amongst the hemp seeds. I only add like a teaspoon, which is like five grams or so. Um, Are yeah. they high in fat? Uh, one teaspoon has like two grams of fat. So So why not add like two teaspoons? Yeah, if you want four grams of fat, add however much you want, dude. Like eat hemp seeds with a spoon. I don't care what you do. But the main thing is they thicken up your oatmeal. 
<laughs> that's what I learned. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that is. I'll have to try it. Yeah. Except, All right. Yeah, I've just... I won't be... Yeah, when I'm next in a deficit. I just yeah. wrapped up today, but that'll come in the next yeah. podcast. Yes, exactly. Well, at least you got that, that hemp trick up your sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, guys, I guess that was the end of our 88th episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you did enjoy it, remember, please do take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See you guys.